Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to The Pickup Line. On today's episode, we're going to be diving a little bit deeper into orality and literacy, talking a bit about music and why music is so connected with this work, and sharing some thoughts on the third section of this book. Thanks so much for hanging out today. Let's get into it. So after spending some time in the second chapter of Orality and Literacy, tracing and going into some of the, the research that, is, that has led up to Ong's current thoughts, he starts to get into some more interesting stuff um, in chapter three, uh, titled Some Psychodynamics of Orality. And I, I'd, love, I'd love to just spend some time reading this because I think a lot of the stuff in this chapter is really, is really key. So we'll just start here where Ong says, Fully literate persons can only with great difficulty imagine what a primary oral culture is like. That is, a culture with no knowledge whatsoever of writing or even of the possibility of writing. Try to imagine a culture where no one has ever looked up anything. In a primary oral culture, the expression to look up something is an empty phrase. It would have no conceivable meaning. Without writing, words as such have no visual presence, even when the objects they represent are visual. They are sounds. You might call them back, recall them, but there is nowhere to look for them. They have no focus and no trace. A visual metaphor showing dependency on writing. Not even a trajectory. They are occurrences. Events. So what an interesting idea, especially in in the year 2020, thinking about the idea of looking things up. Um, this is something that we are that we've become so accustomed to and so uh, reliant upon the, the notion that we have devices at our disposal anytime we need them, uh, giving us the ability to look up literally any piece of information we could ever want. If we wanted to recall a story, a book, a, a speech, a poem, a song lyric. Um, these are just a, a voice command away, which is another interesting layer now that we're, as we're starting to get away from like using our, our language and our writing to, to look things up. When we can ask a, an algorithm to do it verbally, I wonder how that complicates uh, this, this whole discussion. But this idea of sounds, of words as, as events, as occurrences, as, as um, uh, impermanent moments is really hard for someone like me to understand. I think someone like in our culture to understand, as, as Ong continuously points out, it's really difficult for literate minds to understand what a fully oral culture and society must be like. Um, Ong goes on to say, to learn what a primary oral culture is and what the nature of our problem is regarding such a culture, it first helps to reflect on the nature of sound itself as sound. And this, this part's really cool. Um, so check this out. All sensation takes place in time, but sound has a special relationship to time unlike that of the other fields that register in human sensation. Sound exists only when it is going out of existence. It is not simply perishable, but essentially evanescent. And it is sensed as evanescent. When I pronounce the word permanence, by the time I get to the pence, the perma is gone. And it has to be. There is no way to stop sound and have sound. I can stop a moving picture camera and hold one frame fixed on the screen. If I stop the movement of sound, I have nothing, only silence, no sound at all. All sensation takes place in time, but no other sensory field totally resists a holding action 
stabilization in quite this way. Vision can register motion, but it can also register immobility. Indeed, it favors immobility, for to examine something closely by vision, we prefer to have it quiet. We often reduce motion to a series of still shots, the better to see what motion is. There is no equivalent of a still shot for sound. An oscillogram is silent. It lies outside the sound world. I think that's such a cool idea, thinking about this notion that there's no still image for sound. You can't, um, you can't stop it. You can't hold it. It's not a permanence thing. It's, it's extremely impermanent. Um, and, and, and for me, this idea, again, connects back to the music of my favorite band, The Midnight, which we discussed a few episodes back. Um, they write a lot and sing a lot about the idea of impermanence. Uh, and again, I'll, 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 pull, I'll, I'll kind of refer to this, this, this phrase that they, they, they've adopted, a mono nowhere, and this idea that, you know, there is a sad beauty in that impermanence. And I think that phrase... I haven't traced the history of it, but I would imagine after having read Ong's ideas here that that phrase probably comes out of an oral culture that understood that time passes regardless of what we say and this the memories that we have and the sounds that we hear and these events, these occurrences, these moments in time are not going to last forever. Uh, oral cultures probably, I would imagine, as, as Ong, I think, imagines, um, and theorizes is that we're very aware of this fact. They were very aware that what they were saying and what they were talking about and the ideas that they were sharing were very impermanent. Um, and, and that was part of it. That was part of the culture. That was part of the experience. That was what it was like to be a member of that society. Uh, that sort of idea that you can't, you cannot hold sound. Um, it's such a cool notion. Um, Ang continues to say another example of this. A hunter can see a buffalo, smell, taste, and touch a buffalo when the buffalo is completely inert, even dead. But if the hunter hears a buffalo, better watch out. Something is going on. In this sense, all sound, and especially oral utterance, which comes from inside living organisms, is dynamic. The fact that oral peoples commonly and in all likelihood universally consider words to have magical potency is clearly tied in, at least unconsciously, with their sense of the word as necessarily spoken, sounded, and hence power-driven. Deeply typographic folk forget to think of words as primarily oral, as events, and hence as necessarily powered. For them, words tend to be assimilated to things out there on a flat surface. Such things are not so readily associated with magic, for they are not actions, but are in a radical sense dead, though subject to dynamic resurrection. Um, Another cool idea here, this idea of words as magic. And we see this everywhere. We see this in all of our fairy tales and all of our our, uh, literary traditions and in our music, in our movies. Uh, We see it everywhere. I mean, just just, just, I'm sure you can think of a, a magic spell right off the top of your head right now, you know, abracadabra, right? Um, words have power, and this comes from oral cultures where words really did have power, where they were they were something just like a, a physical force that you would uh, exert from your physical body by pushing a stone or by throwing a rock or by uh, moving dirt. Uh, in the same way, you were producing something that was powered by the sounds that were coming out of your body. Right, a sound that you were making that had a, a, an impact, that had a force on someone else. Uh, it's a really interesting concept. Uh, as I was reading this chapter towards the end of this section, I put a question mark in the margin because I wasn't exactly sure what was going on here. Um, so I'll just read this and maybe somebody can call in and, and give, me, <laughs> give me some insights. Um, 
Ong says, uh, oral peoples commonly think of names, one kind of words, as conveying power over things. Explanations of Adam's naming of the animals in Genesis 2.20 usually call condescending attention to this presumably quaint, archaic belief. Such a belief is in fact far less quaint than it seems to unreflective, chirographic, and typographic folk. First, of all, names do give human beings power over what they name. Without learning a vast store of names, one is simply powerless to understand, for example, chemistry and to practice chemical engineering. I, I know that for a fact because I spent a lot of time in college learning a lot of chemistry shit. Um, and so with all other intellectual knowledge, uh, and, and so it is with all other intellectual knowledge. Secondly, and this is the part that I was kind of confused about, chirographic and typographic folk tend to think of names as labels, written or printed tags, imaginatively affixed to an object named. Oral folk have no sense of a name as a tag, for they have no idea of a name as something, as something that can be seen. Written or printed representations of words can be labels. Real spoken words cannot that that concept i just was having a hard time sort of grasping what that means uh were there no labeling of things in oral cultures like if i i'm sure there must have been some sort of commonality among you know that thing there is a tree or whatever the word was whatever the sound was that represented that idea or that object or that thing or that command or that desire um so i'm confused about that point about what that actually means like word things not words spoken words cannot be labels uh, i just don't know um and there's one other section of this uh chapter that i'll kind of point to which i thought was really interesting um ang says suppose a person in an oral culture would undertake to think through a particular complex problem and would finally manage to articulate a solution which itself is relatively complex consisting let us say of a few hundred words how does that person retain for later recall the verbalization so painstakingly elaborated so in an oral culture how, how do you come up with complex arguments how could you possibly do it if everything is just memory if everything is just stuff you remember how could you possibly have like a complex argument with citations quotes uh, other people's voices in there how could you possibly do all of that um and on says in the total absence of any writing there is nothing outside the thinker no text to enable the thinker to produce the same line of thought again and again or even to verify whether he or she has done so or not um a day memoir i'm probably not saying that right such as notched sticks or a series of carefully arranged objects will not of themselves retrieve a complicated series of assertions how in fact could a lengthy analytic solution ever be assembled in the first place an interlocutor is virtually essential it is hard to th talk to yourself for hours on end sustained thought in an oral culture is tied to communication um so, so this this started to ring a bell really really strongly for me because this ties into the idea of audience right um for me as a writing teacher thinking about what i teach my students about the importance of audience the importance of who is who is engaging with you in this composition in this thing you're creating in this text and tracing that idea back to oral cultures and how important it was for the audience to be a part of that you know it's it's almost impossible to sit there by yourself and have a conversation with yourself uh, in fact earlier in this chapter uh, Ang talks about the bicameral mind if any of you are interested in Westworld, maybe we can tie in some Westworld discussions in the next episode but since that's coming up the new season of that's coming up but uh, the bicameral mind meaning the idea that uh, in in sort of um primitive human culture uh, the thoughts that humans were having in their brains 
uh, were interpreted as commands from the gods or voices in their heads or, or mystical uh, things that they were receiving from somewhere else. And then, and then they sort of vocalized those things as, as something that wasn't internal, that wasn't themselves thinking. Um, we see that theme a lot in, in Westworld. Uh, but this idea of sustained thought in an oral culture is tied to communication. Um, the only answer to this, Ong posits, is that you must think memorable thoughts. In primary oral culture, to solve effectively the problem of retaining and re- retrieving carefully articulated thought, you have to do your thinking in mnemonic patterns shaped for ready oral recurrence. Your thought must come into being in heavily rhythmic, balanced patterns, in repetitions or antitheses, in alliterations and assonances, in epithetic and other formulary expressions, in standard thematic settings, the assembly, the meal, the duel, the hero's helper, and so on, in proverbs which are constantly heard by everyone so that they come to mind readily and which themselves uh, are patterned for retention and ready recall. Or, in other mnemonic forms, serious thought is intertwined with memory systems. Mnemonic needs determine even syntax. And this was really interesting because I this made me think a lot about how music functions, right? I mean, I, can, I, I can't... I don't have speeches memorized. I don't have novels memorized. Um, I don't have... You know, I can't recite lines from Shakespeare that readily, but I can. I could literally recall and sing every line of every Midnight song and ev- and most Bruce Springsteen songs right now if I wanted to. Um, and so, music I think is carrying forth this oral tradition because obviously it's a primarily oral form. Um, so, and I, so I think we we see a lot of what Ong is talking about in music uh, and the way that storytellers and songwriters and singers are doing that work and of creating things that are easily recallable, mnemonic, rhythmic, um, and that allow us to engage with that history and that, that medium in such a, a um, deeply connected way. I think that our, our, as human beings, our relationship with music is very much more intimate than our relationship with literature and with writing. And I think that's a lot of what Ong is talking about in this book and why music is so crucial to our, you know, community, community and our connection to one another. Um, he goes on to say, formulas help implement rhythmic discourse and also act as mnemonic aids in their own right, as set expressions circulating through the mouths and ears of all. Red in the morning, the sailor's warning. Red in the night, the sailor's delight. Uh, divide and conquer. To err is human. To forgive is divine. Sorrow is better than laughter, because when we face, because when the face is sad, the heart grows wiser. Uh, the clinging vine, the sturdy oak, chase off nature, and she returns at a gallop. Uh, fixed, often rhythmically balanced expressions of this sort and other sorts can be found occasionally in print, indeed can be looked up in books of sayings. But in oral cultures, they are not occasional. They are incessant. They form the substance of thought itself. Thought in any extended form is impossible without them, for it consists in them. Um, So that's just a really cool idea uh, presented here in this chapter of morality and literacy, the idea that sound isn't stationary it's constantly moving it's constantly shifting and changing it's out it's at a it's a moment in time um you know this is this is i think the nostalgia of music by people like the midnight um we see this of course in the folk tradition uh in music as well these sort of like ideas these situations these notions um a theme something easily remembered easily visualized so we're seeing all of that i think playing playing out there and and it's just really neat hearing it in this book and making these sorts of connections um 
I'm also fast. I'm also interested in like hearing Ong write about the idea that sound cannot be captured in a moment is interesting because I've seen kind of neat things with the use of technology. For example, um, turning like when we see sound visualized in software, something that I would think Ong was aware of when he was writing, but you know, like you can import a piece of sound into like, for example, a digital audio workstation like Reaper or uh, Ableton or one of these things. And it gives you a visual image of that sound. Uh, same thing if you're using maybe Audacity for creating a podcast or if you've seen ever seen a wave file. These are all visual representations of sound. Um, so you can see them. You can see what the sound looks like on a... I guess it's like a math thing. It's like a sine wave. I don't really know the math behind it, but like it's, I guess it's a measurement, a visual representation and measurement of the, of the, uh, the way that those sounds are moving, um, you know, up and down on a pattern. I, I don't really know how to talk about it, but like you can see it. And so people have converted their sound files into QR codes, into tattoos, into scannable objects on their, on, on the, in various places where you can, you can sort of, same idea as like almost like an interlocutor where your phone becomes that and you it becomes a, a segue between the sound itself and you and it almost like it almost captures that sound in a, in a moment in time um i think the, re- the recording of audio when we when those pieces of technology came about we started to see a shift in this so you know imagine a, a world where the oral cultures can now be captured where they can now be they can they can be recalled they can be quote-unquote written down um recorded right uh in, in an oral way. I, I'm, ho- I'm, I'm anticipating the book is going to get more into that as we go forward later, but I think this is a really cool concept and this was a neat chapter and I appreciate you tuning in and listening. What are your thoughts on this? Um, do you think that there is a still shot for sound? Is there a way to think about it like that? And what are your kind of reactions to this idea of music being the, the, the sort of carrying forth of oral tradition? Um, feel free to call in, leave me a message. Thank you so much for listening today and I will see you next time on the pickup line. Here's some music to sign us off with.